Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 37. Verses 1 through 13. Then came together unto him the Pharisee and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eating bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisee and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except that they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brass and vessels, and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commands of men. For lying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curses his father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say unto his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. Burkett notes, The former part of this chapter acquaints us with the conference or disputation which our Savior had with the Pharisees about their superstitious observation with the Jewish traditions. These traditions were such rites and customs as were delivered to them by the elders and rulers of the Jewish church in former times, which traditions they valued and regarded more than the express commandments of God. Learn thence that superstitious men are always more fond of and zealous for the traditions of men in divine worship than for the express and positive commands of God. Secondly, that it is the manner of such persons to tie others to their own practice and example in matters of religious worship, and to censure and condemn all those who do not conform to them in the smallest matters. The Pharisee here censure the disciples for eating with unwashed hands, because it was their custom to wash when they did eat. Yet did not Christ or his disciples refuse to wash before meat, as it was a civil and decent custom, but because the Pharisees made it a religious rite, teaching us that what is in itself indifferent and may without offense be done as a civil custom ought to be discountenanced and opposed when required of us as an act of religion. The Jews, fearing lest they should touch any person or thing that was unclean, and so to be defiled unawares, did use frequent washing, as of cups, pots, vessels, tables, beds, or couches, which they lay upon when they eat. Thus, pharisaical hypocrisy puts God off with outward cleaning, instead of inward purity, regarding more the outward cleanliness of the hand than the inward purity of the heart. This was the accusation of the Pharisees, to which our Savior replies by way of recrimination that if his disciples did not observe the tradition of the elders, they, the Pharisees, did reject and make void the commandments of God, 
and did worship him in vain, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. Learn hence that all service and worship which is offered to God according to man's will and ordinances, and not according to the rule of God's own word, is vain and unprofitable. Divine institution is the only pure rule of religious worship. As to the substance of it, here, what God doth not command, he forbids. Observe next, the instance which our Savior produces of the Pharisees violating an express command of God and preferring their own traditions before it. He instances in the fifth commandment, which requires children to relieve their parents in their necessities. Now, though, the Pharisees did not deny this in plain terms, yet they made an exception from it, which, if children pleased, might render it vain, void, and useless. For the Pharisees taught that in case the child of a poor parent that wanted relief would give a gift to the temple, which gift they called Corban, that is, a gift consecrated to God and religious uses, that then the children of the poor person were discharged from making any further provision for their aged and impotent parents, but might reply after this manner, That which thou askest for, thy supply is given to God, and therefore I cannot relieve thee. So that covetous and graceless children looked upon it as the most frugal way, once for all, to find to the temple rather than pay the constant rent of daily relief to their poor parents. Learn hence that the practice of moral duties is required before and is more acceptable to Almighty God than the most solemn acts and exercises of instituted worship whatsoever. I will have mercy, says God, rather than sacrifice. And to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than burnt offerings. Secondly, that no duty, gift, or offering to God is accepted where the duty of charity is neglected. It is much more acceptable to God to refresh the bowels of his saints, who are the living temples of the Holy Ghost, than to adorn material temples with gold and silver. Korban is a Syriac word, signifying a gift given unto God. The Pharisees applied these gifts to the use and service of the temple, possibly to repair, beautify, and adorn it, which had not been amiss if they had not taught that such gifts to the temple did discharge children from the duty of charity to their natural parents. These things they ought to have done in the first place, and not to leave the other undone. Verses 14 through 23. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats. And he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, leaving the Pharisees with some dislike, applies himself to the multitude. 
and instructs them in a very necessary and useful doctrine, touching the true original cause of all spiritual pollution and uncleanness, namely, the filthiness and impurity of men's hearts and nature, and that it is not the meat eaten with the mouth, but the wickedness of the heart, vented by the mouth, which pollutes a person in God's account. The heart and soul of man alone is capable of sinful defilement. Nothing can defile a person in God's account but that which defile the inward man. Learn hence, one, that the heart of a man is the sink and seed pot of all sin, the source and fountain of all pollution. Two, that all the impiety of the life proceeds from the impurity and filthiness of the heart. Men's lives would not be so bad if their hearts were not worse. The disciples, desiring the interpretation of the foregoing parable, our Savior gives it to them, but withal postulates with them for not understanding a matter so obvious and plain. Are ye yet without understanding? As if he had said, Have you sat thus long under my ministerial teachings and enjoyed the benefit of my conversation, and yet are no further proficients in knowledge? plainly intimating that Christ expects a proficiency in knowledge from us proportionable to the opportunities and means of knowledge enjoyed by us. Having given them this rebuke, he next acquaints them with the sense and meaning of the parable, namely, that it is out of a wicked and sinful heart that all sin and wickedness doth proceed. Though the occasions of sin are from without, yet the source and original of it is from within. The heart of man is as a cage full of unclean birds. Hence proceed evil thoughts, either against God or our neighbors. Adulteries, or all the sins of the flesh. Murders, that is, all cruelty and hard dealing towards others. An evil eye, that is, an envious spirit, which frets and grieves at the happiness of others. Called an evil eye, because envy doth much show and manifest itself in the outward countenance, and especially by the eyes. From the whole note that the best way to hinder the progress of sin in the life is to mortify it in the heart, to crucify all inordinate motions, lusts, and corruptions in their root. For the heart is the first seat and subject of sin, from whence it flows forth into the life and conversation. Verses 24 through 30. And from thence he arose and went into the border of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it. But he could not be hid. For a certain woman, whose daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him, and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syro-Phoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meant to take the children's bread and cast it unto the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For saying this, go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out, and her daughter laid upon the bed. Burkett notes, All along in the history of our Savior's life, we are to take notice how he went about from place to place doing good. Being now come into the borders of Tyre and Sidon, he finds a poor woman of the race of the Canaanites, who became first a humble supplicant and then a bold beggar on the behalf of her possessed daughter. Where observe one, that though all of Israel could not example the faith of this Canaanite, yet was her daughter tormented with the devil. Learn thence that neither truth of faith nor strength of faith can secure against Satan's inward temptations or outward vexations, 
and consequently the worst of bodily afflictions are no sufficient proof of divine displeasure. Observe, too, the daughter did not come to Christ herself, but the mother for her. Perhaps the child was not so sensible of its own misery, but the mother feels both the child's sorrow and her own. True goodness teaches us to appropriate the afflictions of others to ourselves, causing us to bear their griefs and to sympathize with them in their sorrows. Observe 3. The seeming severity of Christ to this poor woman. He calls her not a woman, but a dog, and, as it were, spurns her from the table. Did ever so severe a word drop from those mild lips? What shall we say? Is the Lamb of God turned a lion, that a woman in distress, imploring pity, should be thus raided out of Christ's presence? But hence we learn how Christ puts the strongest faith of his children upon the severest trials. This trial had never been so sharp if her faith had not been so strong. Usually, where God gives much grace, he tries grace much. Observe 4. The humble carriage of this holy woman. Her humility grants all. Her patience overcomes all. She meekly desires to possess the dog's place, not to crowd to the table, but to creep under it, and to partake of the crumbs of mercy that fall from thence. Nothing is so pleasing to Christ as to see his people follow him with faith and importunity when he seems to withdraw himself from them. Verses 31 through 37. And again, departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis. And they bring unto him one that was deaf, and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hands upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, and said unto him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it, and were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Burkett notes, See here, one, the bitter fruit and sad effect of sin, which has brought deafness, dumbness, and blindness upon the human nature. As death, so all disease, entered into the world by sin. Sin first brought infirmities and mortality into our natures, and the wages of sin are disease and death. Observe, too, that the blessing of bodily health and healing is from Christ, who by his divine power, as he was God, miraculously and immediately healed them that were brought unto him. Observe, three, the actions and gestures which our Savior used in healing this deaf person. He puts his fingers into his ears, he spits and touches his tongue, not that these were means or natural causes affecting the cure, for there was no healing virtue in the spittle, but only outward signs, testimonies, and pledges of Christ's divine power and gracious readiness to cure the person in distress. Observe 4. How Christ withdrew the person from the multitude whom he was about to help and heal, teaching us in all our good works to avoid all show and appearance of ostentation and vainglory to set God's glory before our eyes, and not seek our own praise. Observe 5. The effect which this miracle had upon the multitude. It occasioned their astonishment and applause. They were astonished and said, He hath done all things well. It becomes us both to take notice of the wonderful works of God, and also to magnify and extol the author of them. This is one way of glorifying our Creator. <laughs>